0: The following message is from the 2017 IBCD Institute, Addictions, Grace for the Journey. Our Father, we thank you for uh, gathering us here this weekend, and thank you for the good work of IBCD, and we pray that there would be much good fruit that comes from from this conference. Father, we pray that you would equip your people and uh, we ask, Lord, that you would help us in in this time to um, uh, to glean from from these lessons and to hopefully be better equipped to serve those who are who are caught in these sins. And we commit this time to you in Jesus' name, Amen. All right. So we had uh, this guy come to our church years, years and years ago, and he came from a very solid sister church. And in fact, this guy had one of the best, uh, Puritan libraries that I had ever seen. I mean, it was really impressive, lots of rare stuff. And he was uh, very, very generous and he would give me books from time to time. And, and I mean, the kind of books that I really like, you know, and, um, he was a great conversationalist. He could sit there and talk with you for a good hour or two about what he was reading, and, and typically he was reading something like Jonathan Edwards, and uh, he was in our church for a, quite a while, and uh, one day we get a call from his brother, who was in another church in California, and his brother asked if we knew that, uh, that Bob uh, struggled with alcohol, and of course we had no, we had no clue And Bob had a job that would take him to uh, Southern California regularly. And his brother actually informed us that Bob was in the hotel in California for his job. And he was um, on a three or four day drunk. And so Bob came back home and we confronted him. And he wept and wept profusely, admitted that he had struggled with alcohol and struggled for years. And so we started getting people involved in his life. And uh, we had really wonderful, faithful people just keeping him accountable, meeting with him regularly, doing the kind of stuff that we know that we, that we should do. And, and what ended up happening was over the next couple of years in dealing with Bob, it was like a roller coaster. And uh, what we started to notice was that he would um, go off and go on a a, a drinking spree. And when he was confronted or confessed, uh, he seemed less remorseful than the time before. And uh, pretty soon... Um, we started to notice uh, almost a cavalier attitude towards, towards his own drunkenness. And then I got a dreaded call one day. A uh, young man in our church had gone over to his home. By the way, the, his home was this beautiful home owned by another member in our church. He was renting it from them. And uh, this young man called and said, Bob's car is in front of his house. And he is um, not answering his phone. He's not answering his door. So one of, our, one of my fellow elders, another deacon and the owner of the home we got in the house and what we found was bob sitting in a lazy boy uh, in his own feces naked wrapped in a blanket the blanket was soaked in his own waist and there were trails from the lazy boy to the restroom and you could see that his failure to make the restroom by these shortening distances of larger and larger accidents, if you will. Uh, Feces were literally everywhere. And um, I had brain surgery a year ago. Can't smell anything now. I wish to God that I wouldn't have been able to smell anything then. We spent three hours cleaning him up and cleaning up the house. And as we're trying to talk to him, of course, he is he's in tears. At times, he's coherent. At other times, he's incoherent. Um, he was in such a weakened state. Um, he had probably been drinking nonstop for, at that time, maybe five or six days. And uh, he suffered from other physical issues. It actually complicated uh, his situation. And at first, as we started to talk to him, Bob seemed incredibly ashamed. He seemed embarrassed. I mean, you have three grown men cleaning up your feces. It's embarrassing. And uh, I told him that the first step was, we need to get the alcohol out of your system. And so you need to go and uh, go to detox, and then, then we're going to get you help. And he said, well, that's, that's fine, but I have to leave for a job for Bakersfield tomorrow. And I said, well, <laughs> I mean, how in the world do you think you're going to get to Bakersfield? You, you need, first of all, you need medical attention right now. You've got so much alcohol in you. I said, but secondly, you, you are in danger. You are in spiritual danger. You, you don't understand what you're doing to yourself. And at that point, he got defiant, stating that he needed to leave for his job the next day. So we put him under church discipline, which he agreed was the right thing to do. In his his clear moments, he agreed that was the right thing to do. And as we went through the discipline process with Bob, um, we were within, I think, two or three weeks of of actually excommunicating him for his lack of repentance. During this time, his his ex-wife, who had left him because of his drunkenness, had actually moved back into his house because she was fearful for his, for his safety. They got in an argument, and um, he got in his truck and drove a quarter mile to the Chevron, to buy beer he came back and um, of course he was intoxicated when he did this when he got back um, they got in this argument she took his keys from him and uh, the argument escalated and then she just went off to bed after he finished drinking the beer that he had just bought He starts rummaging through the house to find the keys, and she hid them well. So he decided at 10 o'clock at night that he was going to walk to the Chevron, which is only a quarter mile away, but uh, neuropathy in both feet, bad physical condition, and it's February. And where we live, we live in the high desert, and it was 8 degrees when he decided to leave to walk to the Chevron. He walks to the Chevron, buys his beer, walks back, and as he's coming up his driveway, he has a massive heart attack. And his ex-wife, of course, is asleep, and we don't know exactly when, when Bob died, um, but he was found the next morning, uh, having been in his driveway all night in sub-zero temperatures. Um, certainly one of the saddest situations that we've ever encountered. But when we moved to Nevada in 1993, we planted the church, Grace Community Church. And it seems that that from the very beginning, we were constantly dealing with people that had drug or alcohol problems. And um, I remember one time preaching um, on the East Coast and Sitting around with a bunch of pastors at lunchtime, and they started going around talking about so what are the problems you're dealing with in your church and one guy's like yeah we've got we've got a few men, and they just won't lead their families in family worship and and another guy yeah we've got we've got a real problem with our teenagers, they're gossiping and backbiting and someone looks at you and said what, what kind of problems you have way out there in Nevada I'm like well, we've got three people on meth we've got four or five drunkards we have." And, of course, you know, their eyeballs got as big as saucers. And um, I felt like saying, if you want to deal with real sinners, come on out to Nevada. We've got plenty of them. Um, There are some particular things about our church that lend uh, themselves to us dealing with this more frequently. We have a ministry for unwed pregnant moms, the City of Refuge and many who come to the City of Refuge actually come uh, from a background uh, of drug or alcohol addiction. We are uh, actively engaged in multiple prison ministries, and many of those that are released from prison come into our body, and of course, um, many of those uh, come from a drug or alcohol background. Um, What's also interesting is that as I, as I look back over the last 24 years or so, that some have come into our body with having had drug or alcohol problems, and then of course um, sober for a while, and then end up going back into those sins. But there's also a group that have never had a background in drug or alcohol problems, and yet end up becoming ensnared... ...even as they're actively engaged in the life of the church. Now, let me just say from the the, uh, outset that none of these things, of course, make me an expert. Um, I actually am really nothing but an ordinary pastor. And I'm very blessed to serve a a loving, ministry-minded church... And it's, um, this is kind of like talking about parenting. Uh, you, you get up and, and you want to just say, I'm here to tell you about all the ways that I screwed up and how you shouldn't. Um, um, <laughs> it's dangerous to preach on parenting when your kids are little because you think you have it all figured out, and then they grow up and, and you realize, I had no idea what I was talking about. Um, but we're blessed to have a... a a small handful of people that have been caught up in these sins over the years who, by God's grace, have repented and been restored to the body. And even one, which I'll get to at the end, within just the last few months. And so um, I I actually tried to get out of doing anything this Summer Institute. And so I told Craig, it's OK. I don't want to do anything. And Craig said, OK, well, Craig called Jim. And about 20 minutes later, I got a call from Jim. And Jim said, you guys have dealt with more drug addicts and alcoholics than anybody I know. You should talk about pastoral lessons that you've learned. And well, you start thinking about how do you how do you collate the lessons that you've learned? Right. So what I decided to do, and this was this was really helpful for me, is um, took three people that have been restored and sat down with them and interviewed each one of them extensively. And so some of these things that I'm going to share with you are just obvious. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about them because you know these things. But I, I, I throw these into the mix simply because they are uh, a part of their stories. Um, so six lessons regarding the offender And the sin, Uh, and, and you might notice that I'm going to try to avoid talking in terms that make it sound like people are victims of these sins. Because by and large, they're not victims. They make conscious choices to do the things that they do. And uh, oftentimes being surrounded by a network of people who are more than happy to help them at any given time, and yet they continue to make the choices that they make. So we're going to talk about six lessons regarding the offender and then the the sin as well. Um, The first thing that that stands out when you think about um, 24 years of people that have gone into drug or alcohol abuse is there is this common denominator of the negative role of ungodly friends or ungodly influences. Uh, and, of course, the Bible tells us a lot about that. Um, there are uh, many Proverbs. I listed some of those for you. But, of course, you know, Paul says quite simply, bad company does what? Corrupts good morals. And in each one of these cases that I, that I interviewed, um, there was always a pull towards the sin through the pressure of other people. So, for instance, uh, one man who had started drinking and using drugs early in his life, uh, I asked him, so, so Bill, what what was it? And he said, um, you know, he says, I was this tall, gangly kid. I was 19 years old. I had trouble talking to girls. I wasn't very popular. And I noticed that when I drank, I felt more comfortable in talking to girls. and, um, and, And the guys around me were impressed with how much I could drink. And so they spurred me on and um, ended up introducing him to other things. Uh, another woman uh, had a drug pass with a family member. She had broken ties with that family member, ended up running into that family member later. And, uh, of course, what did they start talking about? They started talking about when they used to use together. And the more they talked about how they used to use together, they ended up going and buying and using together. And she got, uh, as it were, rehooked on drugs. Uh, another guy, and this, this story is not going well right now, uh, actually got clean in prison, made a profession of faith in prison, and was drug free for eight years. And got a job working a graveyard shift in an industry that is let's just say a a tendency of a lot of drug use Um, and he's around these young guys he himself is probably 40. He's around these young guys in their early 20s they start bragging about how much um, speed they take and how many drugs they take and of course the bravado kicks in and He starts telling them that in his day, he did so much more than they could even imagine. And pretty soon, through those contacts, he's using again. And so one of the things that we have to be uh, aware of and, and, and really keep in mind when we're trying to counsel, especially for prevention, is the power of ungodly influence. Okay? Uh, if, if you walk with fools, you'll become a fool. If you hang out with, you know, it's like the Proverbs say, if we hang out with, with drunkards, if we hang out with gluttons, uh, if we hang out with angry people, those sins are going to rub off on us. And, um, and so, uh, again, the negative role of ungodly friends or influences. The second thing, and this is important, I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 3. One of the things that's been obvious in dealing with this over the years is really just the insidious nature of sin itself. And, of course, the Bible tells us that the flesh wages war against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh so that we don't do the things that we want to do. Um, But there's an insidious nature to sin that is, um, let's just say, especially insidious when it comes to these sins, all right? Um, And so the writer to the Hebrews says in 3.12, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, one of the things that we need to keep in mind when we're dealing with, with those ensnared with drugs and alcohol is that indwelling sin itself is a powerful, powerful thing, right? Um, but indwelling sin is not just powerful. I mean, all you've got to do is read uh, Romans 7, 14 to 25 to see the power of indwelling sin, but we have to understand too that, that, that sin is brutal and it is cruel. And I speak in terms of personification of sin. And when I say that it's brutal and cruel, what I mean is, is that sin knows no boundaries, sin actually respects no standards. John Owen in his classic work on sin and temptation said, if sin was allowed to have its final outcome in us, then every act of doubt would be atheism, every act of, or every thought of anger would be murder. And he just goes and lists thing after thing that if sin were to have its free course, it would absolutely take us to all the way to the end to destruction. And so sin knows no standards. I mean, it doesn't matter whether the person is an elder's wife or a father or a husband or a wife or a mother or a daughter or a son or a pastor. Sin is simply out to kill. Sin is out to destroy. And it's a cruel enemy that has ultimate destruction in its sight at all times. And uh, in fact, in one, one instance with this, uh, this woman in our church, she grew up in our church by and large. Um, she's walking down the street. She's homeless pushing her baby in a baby stroller, and she's strung out on drugs. And thanks be to God, she had enough clarity to call 911 and say, I'm homeless, I'm on drugs, I can't take care of my baby, come and take my baby. Send somebody to get her. Um, when, when you think about uh, what this sin does this sin aims to destroy not just the abuser but it aims to destroy everybody in its wake and um, uh, ralph Venning, an old puritan says sin has spoiled society so that one man is a wolf even a devil to another, sin will not let husband and wife, parents and children live quietly. Right? And of course, even, even now we have a situation where, where we are watching, um, it, we're doing our utmost, but we are watching um, a, a man destroy himself, his wife, his son, and harm a church that, that loves him. Sin doesn't care if you're a daddy. Sin doesn't care if you're a mommy. Sin doesn't care if you have babies. Sin doesn't care. Sin is also subtle. This is another thing that we, that we need to remember is that small sins which may seem inconsequential lead to bigger sins. In other words, it's the subtlety of sin itself that makes sin so dangerous because sin leads to more sin. Now, here's, here's the funny thing, is that in a sense, drug and alcohol abusers are ordinary sinners, right? The, the, the psychology of being a sinner is the same for all of us, right? So, um, so let's say you have a person who is um, who's a glutton that's the Bible word for, you know, what we would call an eating disorder. Um, And what's the psychology? Well, um, I'm going to do it this last time and then I'm not going to do it anymore, right? Well, we we tell ourselves those kinds of things with our, um, you know, um, entangling sins. The drug addict or the alcoholic Actually, um, is is continually telling themselves this will this will be the last time. I won't do this anymore. And and yet, what happens is that one sin just leads to another. What's interesting is that in my in my interviews, that each one of these people said that they they started and we're talking about people who have done uh, who have done meth abused prescription drugs um, you know you name it started with guess what marijuana right marijuana and uh, make no mistake about it when when People talk about marijuana as a gateway drug. It is a gateway drug, whether it is legal or not. Unfortunately, Nevada just legalized uh, its medical use this last year. Um, but there are, these, there are these subtleties in the way that sin works. And so you, you, you justify the smallness of the sin. It's just a buzz, or uh, it's just a little bit of pot, or um, I I only do this occasionally. And yet what's happening is that sin is feeding on itself. Um, I just asked a group the other day if they'd ever seen that old Steve McQueen movie, The Blob. And nobody even knew what I was talking about. You've seen The Blob, right? Okay. Yeah, it just gets bigger and bigger. No, no. Yes. Yeah, you're all dating yourself if you say yes. Uh, if you say no, then uh, I can't help you. Um, but this, the idea of this blob is, is this thing just gets bigger and bigger, and the more it consumes, the bigger it gets. And that's really, that's really the very picture of sin, right? It's just, it is this consuming thing, but it starts out small. The other thing in the passage tells us this, sin is deceitful. So in particular, drugs and alcohol um, offer something, and this is what we have to remember. Um, drugs and alcohol offer something to the person. That's how temptation works in general, right? Is that there, there, there's an uh, there's an offer that's being made. Now it's always false advertising, but it's an offer nevertheless. And that offer can be something as simple as popularity. Okay or it could be something as simple as a high. I was talking to one uh, lady and she I was I was really probing what what was it about the drugs and she looked at me finally she just said, "Look, I just liked getting high. I wasn't motivated by anything else other than liking the way that it felt." Right And so drugs or alcohol do that. Sometimes um, it's, it's offering a sense of confidence. Sometimes it's escape from problems. But as we saw from Proverbs 23, in the end, right, it stings. Right? There's always, there's so no matter what it's offering, in the end the consequences are going to be higher than what the person actually is willing to pay when they think they're getting what's being offered. That's the way that sin deceives us. Now that dynamic of sin is the same for all of us. But in particular for the drug or alcohol abuser, the sting is especially Hard, um, Sin hardens the heart. Notice again the text. Why are we to encourage one another as long as it's still called today? So that, you see it there, none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so... The deceit of sin offers us something, of course, that it never really delivers on, but uh, it, it continues to offer and we continue to bite. That, that, that by the way, is insanity, right? Sin itself it, it, it is a form of insanity, we, we keep doing the same thing, thinking that, that, that we're going to escape the consequences on the one hand and that it's going to pay off like it offers on the other. But what happens in the process is that the heart is hardened. And so it's the deceitfulness of sin that ends up hardening the heart. And what happens is, of course, the, the, the conscience gets dulled. The heart becomes hardened. And, and this is what it looks like. Certain conditions are justified. Boundaries are moved. Excuses are made. And once the heart is hardened, self-deceit and the deceit of others becomes a way of life. Okay? You get that self-deceit and the deceit of others then becomes a way of life. So w- w- one man that uh, we were dealing with Um, he had this is the guy that was clean for eight years he got back into drugs Um, his wife was pleading with him to stop he came in to talk to us and uh, he said that he wanted to um, wanted to get clean wanted to get sober we kept saying what you really need is repentance Okay, so not just, not just the language of sobriety. Not just the language of being clean. The language of being repentant and devoted to God. And he, uh, he hadn't taken anything at that point, like in 10 days, something like that. And, and I'll never forget, he looked at us and he said, you have to understand. He says, I'm still in a fog. He says, m- m- my mind is not clear. Even though I haven't done anything in 10 days, I'm in a fog. Well... He refused our help. Um, We offered to send him to Bethany Farms uh, in Indiana. Um, And what, what he ended up doing is he ended up going back into the lifestyle of using drugs full bore. And when I talked to him at one point, I said, I said, do you remember when you told us you were in a fog? I said, you are in a fog right now. You're not thinking clearly. And he looks at me as as serious as can be. And he says, I am clearer now than I have ever been. Funny, 10 days with no drugs in your system, just the residual drugs that you had taken. You said you were still in a fog. But now that you're actually using probably every day, now you're clear what is that? That's self-deceit. And what he has done is he's convinced himself and he's trying to convince everybody else around him. And, um, and so very clearly we have to understand that the nature of sin is to enslave. And drugs and alcohol have a, let's just say, a peculiar enslaving power. Um, these sins are, are powerful, brutal, destroy people's lives, often like, um, unlike other sins. There's a subtlety, a deceitfulness to it that frequently leads a person down the road to apostasy if they're a professing Christian. In fact, one man, and these are his exact words, he said, He said, I started drinking again on December 24th after the Lord's Day service. So he went home from church, started drinking again. Once again, I didn't tell Mike or Brian. And in the course of that drunken spree, I missed Christmas with my family, the birth of my granddaughter, and committed adultery. I will not bother to catalog the other sins that a man on a three-week drunken binge commits on a daily basis. That's, That's slavery. That's slavery. Another man said, Brian, sin ruined my marriage and some of my best friendships because I underestimated its power to destroy all that is good. So, as we think about the insidious nature of sin, which is absolutely critical, I'm, I'm going to suggest to you that, that one of the important lessons here is that uh, whatever we may know or surmise about brain chemistry and, and alcohol or drugs, whatever we may know or surmise about genetic predispositions, drug and alcohol abuse can never be, never be framed in a disease model. And one of the reasons is, is because the disease model puts the offender in a victim status. And the fact is is that we need to teach and counsel people using the full biblical doctrine of sin when it comes to these sins... And so the sin of drug and alcohol abuse really, in a sense, seems to capture the, um, to use a little Puritan language, the sinfulness of sin and the evil of evils like no other. And so how we actually teach and preach on the nature of sin and the destructive power of indwelling sin and, most importantly, the power of Christ to defeat every sin is absolutely vital. Third lesson, drug or alcohol abusers become deceitful and manipulative. Anybody that works with anybody that's ever had drug or alcohol issues, you know that deceit and manipulation, they become masters at it. And of course, does that surprise us? No, the heart is deceitful above all else, desperately wicked. Who can know it? And so the person enslaved to drugs or alcohol becomes a master liar and a master deceiver this this man that I was talking about, there were times that he and I could have transparent, heart-to-heart conversations where he would have told me anything. Once drugs and alcohol got involved, he became a liar. And they will not only lie to their your face, but they're often lying to themselves and will try to manipulate absolutely everybody around them. One of the things that That is, I mean, to me, it just seems like an axiom now. And that is, if you're dealing with somebody who's using drugs or alcohol, you just assume that they're lying to you. Okay? You will be right 99.9% of the time. You assume that they're lying to you. So what does that mean? Well, it it means something like this. I'm having a conversation with this woman. And she tells me, I've been clean for 13 years. And I said, well, what do you mean by clean? And she says, well, I'm clean. I've, I've been drug free for 13 years. And I said, even pot? And she goes, well, no, I mean, pot's not really like a drug. So she'd been using pot... And that was okay, but in her mind, what is she? She's drug-free. She's sober, right? Um, There's a a joke among our elders. It's not really a joke joke, but this is what I tell our elders all the time. Just remember, two beers actually means six, right? And so there there is this continual... Um, um, lying and deceit. And so in every case, and and I do mean every case, lying and deceit go hand in hand with the sins of drug and alcohol abuse. We had a young lady in our church. I mentioned her earlier. She grew up in our church. And uh, she started to just look terrible. And her and her husband had all kinds of excuses as to why she was losing weight, and why she was getting scabs on her face, and all of this. And and it was just, yeah, well, I mean, elaborate stories. To explain away what seemed obvious to everybody around her. Number four, counseling in these situations is incredibly consuming. Okay. So whether you're experienced or inexperienced in these things, let me just tell you that these types of situations cannot be treated like other counseling situations. Some guy comes in and says, you know what, I, I, I really struggle with anger. You can say to him, you know what? Let's let's get together every week or every other week, and you know, let's do this and that, and that's 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 fine. That works out, and um, you can do that with a lot of uh, issues in people's lives. You can't do that with this one. There's actually an intensity to this that is incredibly consuming. And in fact, did you hear what Mark said in the in the general session? Uh, talking about the, the, the girls at Vision of Hope, he said, they can't do this. Why? Because we watch them like a hawk. They can't do that. Why? Because we watch them like a hawk. They can't do that. Why? Because we watch them like a hawk. There's a sense where y- you feel the need to actually be a 24-7 watchdog with this person. And because there's so much lying and deceit that takes place, you're wondering, where is that person now? Right. Um, In in one case, um, this uh, woman, her husband got on drugs and she actually put a camera in her house so that she could see him during the day. And of course, when he was out of the view of the camera, guess what her first thought was? He's going, he's doing something. He's, he's using, he's, he's, whether he's in the bathroom or he snuck out the back door, right? And so there is this sense of, of an intensity and a consuming nature to this that, um, that frankly is just daunting. It is daunting. Uh, I was doing the, the podcast with Craig last night and we were talking about, about this. And when, when these kinds of situations come up, There is this, there is, I will tell you, there is a a trepidation in my heart knowing that what is about to happen is going to consume my life for however long and consume other people in our church body. And so, um, number five... The ordinary means of grace must be emphasized. And so, you know, reading God's word, praying, being in fellowship with God's people. I would say that this this goes, first of all, for those who are in counseling for drug and alcohol abuse. Heavy, heavy emphasis on the ordinary means of grace, right? Um, There is, first of all, we believe that there's power in God's word. And we believe that there is power in communing with God, and and so there should be for those that are in counseling a heavy, heavy emphasis on the means of grace. Also, a heavy emphasis on um, when the doors are open, you're here. Okay, uh, if if you're a man, you're at men's prayer on Fridays. If you know what I'm saying, so you're here. And there's a heavy emphasis, and th- this also goes, by the way, for those who have uh, repented and are staying sober. Uh, one man, the, one guy that I interviewed, he said, He said, one of the most critical things for me of, of, of staying on the path of obedience and devotion to the Lord is actually just being immersed in the life of my church and the means of grace. Okay, Absolutely critical to me. He says, in fact, when I have to travel for business, he says, that's when that's when I'm alert to the fact that I need extra accountability because I know that I'm going to be away from my church family. And so... Every person uh, that we've dealt with without exception uh, that has actually come back around identified regular church attendance, being in the Word, uh, prayer, meeting with brothers and sisters for prayer and accountability is absolutely, successf- uh, absolutely crud- critical in their fight. All right. Um, we should be emphasizing the ordinary means of grace with our people anyway, right, as as, as a means of growing in grace. Which actually brings me to a, a, another dimension to this. So I'm sitting there with this guy, that, the guy that had gone out on Christmas Eve. And um, I, said, I said, Bill, I said, are you uh, actively, he goes to a different church now. And um, I, I said, are you actively involved in helping people? that are struggling with these sins? And he says, absolutely. And I said, so what are you doing? What are you using? And and he said, uh, I take every group through Jerry Bridges, The Pursuit of Holiness. And I said, that's, I said, that's awesome. I said, why, why are you doing that? He says, well, he says, he goes, one of the things is, is that most of these guys are professing Christians. He says, what do we need? We need to actually be pursuing God, pursuing holiness, growing in sanctification. He says, and sometimes I think that we somewhat sort of minimize the idea of the ordinary means of grace and growing as having a positive impact on keeping us in a path of obedience. And so he says, I take these guys through the um, uh, pursuit of holiness, emphasizing progressive sanctification. And, uh, and I would just say that I think that there's certainly a time and a place to focus on the sins of drunkenness and, and drug abuse. Um, but I think sometimes we can also do that in a way that is counterproductive. Right. Um, in, in other words, if we miss the bigger pictures bigger picture of holiness, sanctification, growing in grace, walking with God, we may end up sort of um, uh, minimizing a very, very powerful influence in a person's life. Plus, I think maybe focusing all the time on a person's particular sin um, is, is it may not always be the, the most healthy. Um, number six, uh, church discipline. Must be explained and implemented seriously. Uh, Matthew chapter 18. I know it's a familiar passage, but I'd like you to turn there. Matthew chapter 18. I got to hustle up a little bit here if I'm going to get close to finishing. Now you know this passage. So verse 15, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more witnesses with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. Just as a footnote, these don't have to be witnesses to the actual sin, but they're witnesses to the confrontation. All right? Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Mark that. Let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again I say to you... We know this, right? That if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered in my name, I am there in their midst. Now you know what's funny, is we actually divide this passage into two sections. We usually go 15 to 17 and then 18 to 20. But it actually all goes together. And what this passage is actually... Giving us is not just simply the procedure for church discipline, which is which is pretty clear. You go in private, take two or three witnesses, then you take it to the church. Doesn't listen to the church. Here's a couple of things that we need to understand. One, he says that the unrepentant offender okay, is to be to you as a gentile or tax collector. Now I take this to mean that this final step is, is the termination of that person's membership from the church, what we would call excommunication. It's a powerful statement. Why? Because it is the church corporately acting by the authority of Christ, making a judgment Now, if you you go to a church that doesn't practice church discipline, then you're going to a church that is missing one of the marks of a New Testament church. Discipline is an incredibly important means in dealing with people who are unrepentant. If they repent, you go to them in private, they repent, guess what? It's over. Right, doesn't have to go past that. If they don't repent, Jesus says there are these steps that take place. Now, let me just say, and this, this might be a little uncomfortable to you, but when Jesus says uh, there to be a Gentile and tax collector, Jesus is not using that in the way that he's used it in the sense of um, reaching people who are the down and outers. <coughs> Jesus is using that terminology in the conventional Jewish way of using that terminology, meaning that they are to be cast out of the covenant community. They don't belong there anymore. And you say, well... Aren't aren't we just supposed to treat them as unregenerate people, as sinners who need the gospel? And I would say that that is not what the passage is teaching. Listen very carefully. We have unbelievers that come into our church all the time. I'm delighted that they're there, preach the gospel to them, hope that they hear the gospel and respond by God's grace. People that have gone through the process of church discipline have been under the Word of God already, have professed to know Christ already, have been in the body already, these are not just ordinary, unregenerate people. These are people who have said they accept something now, and now by their actions they are rejecting it. In other words, their actions betray the fact that they are acting as an unbeliever. The church, therefore, needs to act, not quickly, patiently. We've never, when, when we put somebody out, it takes months and months all right, but we—if—if ha- if, if we don't treat church discipline, implement it in the way that it is expounded for us in the New Testament, then we might as well not even do it because it is church discipline that is a means of recovering the unrepentant person there is there is a reason why they are put out uh, we don't have time but 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 1 through 13 Paul actually reiterates for us in a sense the same kind of thing where he says you're to clean out the, uh, the, uh, the leaven, you're not to associate with such a one, you're not even to eat with such a one, and then finally you are to remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Now what's the significance when Jesus says where two or three are gathered in my name? That's not to say when you hang out at Starbucks with two or three Christian friends Jesus is right there with you. Of course Jesus is right there with you. The significance of that section in Matthew is to say that Jesus as the head of the church adds his testimony to the testimony of those who are testifying against the offender that's the connection between the two or three if you don't read the passage altogether you miss the connection So, in other words, when the church speaks, and the church speaks corporately, the church is speaking with the authority and the voice of Christ, and people need to understand that. So, in a letter to an unrepentant man, I wrote these words some 8 years, 10 years ago, maybe, I don't remember. You might think this letter is too hard. It would be too hard if you were sick. It would be too hard if you were helpless. But I do not see your drunkenness as a disease, or your gambling as a sickness, or your lying as a disorder. These are all choices that you've made out of your darkened heart, and you bear the full responsibility for all your sins. In another case when a letter was received stating impending excommunication, and in fact sometimes I'll use the language of 1 Corinthians 5, 5, and 6, the church is going to hand you over to Satan. This is Paul's language, by the way. Hand you over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the Spirit might be saved, right? Handing it over to Satan, that's like that's pretty heavy-sounding stuff, but it's Bible language, right? Wrote this letter, and this this woman was so alarmed and awakened by the idea of being put out of the church that she repented. In fact, she's at this conference this weekend. Okay. Sought the Lord. In another case, a man was actually relieved when he was put under church discipline. Wrote a letter to the church, to the elders, actually thanking us for putting him under church discipline. And this was always the line that always caught my attention. He said, the the minute I received your letter of being put under discipline, I knew I wasn't being left as an orphan. So if church discipline is not presented and applied in its full biblical rigor, then we might as well just simply abandon it. It's designed to restore the offender, but also remember, it's designed to protect the body. Okay? Unrepentant, recalcitrant people are dangerous to the body of Christ. Okay? So, it's designed to restore, it's designed to protect, and that final step is a profound corporate judgment secured by the presence of Christ. And so, when when we're talking to people... What we need to do is we need to make sure, and, and this takes this takes wisdom. Are there precious promises in the Bible to those who will repent and, and turn from their sin? Absolutely. Wonderful. Are those promises incentive? Absolutely. Are there threats in the Bible? Absolutely. And the threats in the Bible are designed for those that refuse the promises. Okay. Having the having the sense of knowing when to use the promises, when to use the threats, are some of the threats in Scripture scary? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. If you've never seen a scary threat in your Bible, I would just recommend one simple thing. Read your Bible. Okay? <laughs> All right. So now um, I only left myself like seven minutes to talk about our mistakes. <clears throat> All right. So reflections on mistakes first is the use of aa now sometimes you might know that if a person's arrested for a dui or something like that and the court is involved aa may be non-negotiable cuz it's court ordered okay um and and of course the church never has the right to go against a court order all right but in the past and we've done this for reasons i don't want to go into right now um We've made that part of the requirements, and I believe that it's absolutely been a colossal mistake. And I believe it's been a colossal mistake for these reasons. First of all, um, by telling a person part of what we're requiring you to do is go to AA, is what we're doing is we're sending them to unbelievers with an unbelieving worldview and that are really offering a counterfeit religion. Okay. Um, AA is often an environment that's actually filled with immorality. You know the 12 steps? Do you know the 13th step? Okay. Some of you are shaking your head. The 13th step is sexually hooking up with somebody in the 12 steps. Okay. It's actually called the 13th step. Um, the counterfeit church of AA can begin to replace the True Fellowship of Christ church. So, talking to this one guy, and, and he said one of the reasons why it was easy for me to leave the church was because I felt like the people at AA were more understanding and less judgmental than the people at church. And so I started to think I had better friends in AA than I had in church, okay? Um, one particular man um, actually did um, commit serial adultery, um, and that was all through AA contacts. And so, um, like I said, you can't go against a court order, but I believe that it is a, it is a profound mistake to make that a part of the process. Um, number two, very, very quickly, sometimes I believe we've been overly sympathetic to the spouse. Now, I want to make a quick caveat. Oftentimes, the spouse is, in fact, a victim of the other spouse's drug or alcohol abuse. And we should be kind and gentle and loving and supportive as possible. But sometimes we've also, in the past, allowed spouses to make excuses and to enable the offender... And come to find out the spouse, the, the quote, clean spouse, is running interference so that the church doesn't know the full extent of what the drunk or the the drug addict is doing. And um, instead of being lovingly yet firmly truthful. Sometimes we've been too timid, thinking they're really in such a bad place right now. I would recommend Mark's book on divine intervention, on dealing uh, with families, helping families. It's very good. Uh, Number three, allowing too much flexibility for the offender. So once the offender's been caught or confessed, we want that Galatians 6.1 spirit of gentleness operating, right? We, We need that. But sometimes... Um, I know in the past we have allowed the offender to have uh, too much say in setting the terms. All right. And um, uh, remember, they're in that fog of sin, first of all. And once, once they go there, you have to remember, they've actually abdicated their ability to set the terms of what this looks like. It okay. doesn't mean that you have to be authoritarian and heavy-handed, but they have abdicated their responsibility or their, their, uh, their say-so in, in setting the terms, all right? Um, let's see. Let's uh, skip down to some important reminders. When we're, when we're dealing with people, and you've heard this, you heard it from Mark really powerfully. You heard it from Chris yesterday if you are at the pre-conference. The gospel is, of course, the power of God <laughs> unto salvation, And in a real sense, the gospel is the only hope for real change. Um, And so, when we're dealing with people that are caught in these sins and enslaved to them, we have to remember something, and that is that any real hope for change is not going to come because they learn how to be clean and sober. You could be a drunk and become sober and still go to hell. Right. Um, Our goal in these things is not, of course, just merely sobriety. Our goal is genuine repentance and the mortification of not only this sin, but other sins. And so the standard of success is whether or not we've dealt faithfully with the offender. OK, I mean, how much how much success do you think AA has? By success, that is just sobriety. We have a guy in our church that's somewhat an expert on this, and he says it's less than 5%. Less than 5%. What do you think the success of uh, of rehab places is? Probably actually not much better, right? What do you think our success rate is? Well, it's not very good, but it's better than 5%. Um, we're dealing with something that is incredibly painful, incredibly uh, difficult, uh, in, in includes a lot of, um, let's just say, backsliding. All right? Use the old-fashioned word, backsliding. Um, but the standard of success is, at the end of the day, have we dealt faithfully with the offender? Have they been appropriately warned of what their impenitence is going to lead them to? Okay. Um, I, don't, I don't really care. Well, I do care. But I don't care what your view of eternal security is. Like I said, I do care. But I say that for rhetorical effect. Um, I want you to believe that that those whom God has chosen before the foundations of the world, He'll preserve to the very end. But that never, ever nullifies the responsibility that a believer has to persevere to the end. Okay? Both of those things end up being true. And... When 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 we see somebody abandoning the race, the warnings of Scripture need to come in. So part of the mark of our faithfulness is: has the person been appropriately warned? Has the person uh, have we followed um, the path of pursuing them in love? Do we know? It, by the way, at the end of the day, you'll never be able to say we did everything we could have done for that person. You'll never be able to say that. But you could say, with a good conscience, we did our best. That doesn't mean we did absolutely everything right. It doesn't mean that we did um, everything that we could have done. But we have a good conscience before God that truth was spoken to them. They were encouraged. They were loved. The promises of God were set before them. The threats of God were set before them. Uh, we, We provided a network of people around them who loved them that were willing to help them at the drop of a hat. And we fought hard. On our knees in prayer and in the counseling room or the living room, we fought hard for their repentance unto life. And over a number of years, some people have actually truly repented and been restored. In fact, a few months ago, I was able to stand up before our congregation and read these words. In January, we informed you that we were working with Nana. Nana had been baptized at Grace years before, and we put her under church discipline and finally excommunicated her about five years ago. A little over a year ago, Nana had contacted me and expressed that she was repentant. Over the past six months, we've been working regularly with Nana, evaluating her professed repentance, and we're delighted to tell you today that Naina is being restored to Grace Community Church. This is a powerful reminder to us that God's ways are always best. Although it was very difficult to put Nana under discipline and take that final step, it was God's means of bringing her back to Himself. We give all the praise and glory to God. Nana, we welcome you back to the family of Grace Community Church. Those are happy days. Amen? Alright, well let's pray. If you have questions you can come up and talk to me later. Lord, we, we thank you for um, the wonderful message of redemption that we have in your son, Jesus. We thank you that he has broken the power of sin. We thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. We thank you, Father, that that nothing can separate us from your love. and. Yet, Lord, you call us to a life of obedience. You call us to a life of repentance. You call us to a life of faithfulness. And Father, we pray for those in our lives. Lord, you know everybody in this room and you know every situation they're dealing with. We pray, Lord, for those that are dealing with people that are ensnared in in the sins of drug and, and alcohol abuse. And Father, we pray that by your great mercy, you would intervene and do for them what nobody else can do. We pray that you would rescue them from their sins and bring them to repentance. And Father, we pray that, um, that, that every church represented here would have those happy occasions of being able to welcome back a sinner who was turned from their ways by Your grace. Help us, Father, to be faithful. Help us to walk in Your ways. Help us to minister Your Word with faithfulness and truth. And we commit ourselves to You and to this incredibly daunting task. Thankful that although we're not sufficient for these things... You give us your Holy Spirit who helps us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Copyright 2017, IBCD, all rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.